Father God, I, I do pray that you send your Holy Spirit to us and uh, instruct us this morning, instruct our minds, but, but instruct our spirits and empower and strengthen us to live the life that you have appointed for us. We pray, Lord, that whether the paths be uh, straight, whether they feel uphill, downhill, or, or twisty, uh, that we would feel your companionship, that we would feel you watching us, and we would feel the meaning uh, of this life coursing in our veins. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody says, how many of you would describe your recent life as hard but good? How many of you would describe your recent life as good but hard? Hard but good? Good but hard? Is there a third possibility? How about good, good but easy? Two, two people. How about uh, hard but bad? Uh, as I would have suspected, mostly life is in the hard but good, good but hard category. Um, there is hardly ever a moment in life that is free from struggle. Uh, it's just a matter of where it comes on the list of, of what's happening now, um, how much you feel it. And I think there's very rarely a moment in life that is not uh, at least potentially um, good. It's got some goodness in it somewhere, and it's just a matter of where that comes in the list of, of your perceptions. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about that dynamic today uh, as uh, we continue our story on uh, the story of the Bible. We're taking a look at the whole arc of the Bible. Uh, and tried to understand it in context, not just taking little chunks of it. And today uh, we're going to take a look uh, at the book of Job. Job. Uh, how many of you know, have heard of the book of Job? Good. The sermon was not selected because it's Mother's Day. Uh, just sort of how it happened to fall out. Uh, in, this, in the arc of the story, so we started in Genesis, obviously. We read the oldest stories that humankind has. Uh, the stories of the beginning of the book of Genesis. And we talked about the original problem, which was humanity's inability to trust the good character of God uh, and how life is really about forming trust with the Lord. Uh, and then in the latter half, oh, we talked about uh, the original problem, we failed to trust God, and then God's call to purpose, um, which uh, is uh, typified by the story of Abraham in the latter uh, part of the book of Genesis. Abraham calls, or God calls Abraham to a life of trust and to a mission of purpose. And God has been calling his people uh, to those things ever since. The story of the book of Exodus is a story about God setting people free, not just free from slave and slave circumstances, but free from a slave mentality. And it takes a lot to take us out of our slave mentality and put us into a free mentality. Uh, we talked about a big chunk of the Old Testament that's about staying free. It's where God gives us laws, He gives us rules, He gives us commandments, and He couples them with a sacrificial system that is all about grace. He says, do this, do rightly, but then He kind of builds into the system a mechanism for when we don't do it rightly. 
That's a mechanism of grace, a mechanism that would eventually be typified by the sacrifice of Jesus himself. We read stories about entering into the promised land and what it took for the people of God to stay in the promised land, which is to say, uh, evidently, life with God requires us to fight for our purpose, to fight in order to remain free. Life is a partnership with God, and and it can be a, a tumultuous and violent struggle. That's where the trust and the faith uh, come in. We talked about the prophetic books, which make up a big chunk of the Old Testament, and just the reality that we have a God who speaks. God speaks to us, and that creates some interesting dynamics, as Michelle was just sharing. Uh, We can expect God to speak at us from all quarters, but He speaks to us in a way that always requires faith for us to receive and understand, because again, faith and trust Uh, is the point. Last week, we took a look at some helpful practices that God's people learned along the way. We learned to learn. Life is always about learning new things. That's typified by like the book of Proverbs, where we see the people of God struggling to just kind of boil their lessons down uh, to uh, one-liners so that they remember not to forget what they have learned. Life is always learning. We talked about the book of Psalms, which is a book of of, of worship songs and meditative songs. There's something about life with God that just calls us to create, that calls us to express, and cause us to put on the spirit of worship, uh, which is uh, the spirit that comes on us when we decide to stop calculating and just start letting go uh, with God. And today we're going to uh, uh, round off uh, our understanding of the Old Testament by taking a look at Uh, at least one of the stories of what I call relatable struggles. We're taking a look at the book of Job, uh, which is the Old Testament's maybe purest, most intense commentary on what you might call the problem of suffering, or what I I might call uh, the human condition. Life is often hard, and life very often feels unfair. What do you do about that? What do you do about that? Uh, Job is, uh, if you haven't read it, it's uh, uh, about 42 chapters long, a um, little bit extra on either ends, but it's mostly a, it's, it's written as a drama. Most of it, aside from the very beginning and the very end, is written in poetry, and it's poetic dialogue. It's, it's a play. It's a dialogue uh, between uh, mostly Job and his friends, and Job and, and God. Um, it's a drama about a man, Job, who is being treated unfairly by God. How does that sound? But I think that's the story. Job is a man who is being treated unfairly by God in the sense that he's being treated in a harsh way, but he hasn't really done anything to deserve it. So, you know, there are theologic, theological issues of can God be unfair? He's God and he's perfect. But dang it, the human experience is one of feeling unfairness and injustice, uh, inequalities uh, in the world. And the most amazing thing in my mind about the story of Job is that it's actually in the Bible. Because why would you stick in the middle of a Bible a very long book about God treating someone unfairly, right? If the Bible was a conspiracy of people trying to invent a religion, they would not include the book of Job. But it's in there. 
and I love it that it's in there. It just speaks to incredible authenticity about the tradition and the document that represents it. I think the story of Job speaks to something uh, very important, this, this human experience, this, this challenge of suffering and unfairness in the world, and it's a great story for you if you feel mistreated in life. It's a great story for you if you feel mistreated by life. It's a great story for you if you feel mistreated by God. And I know at least some of you do. Um, I have certainly felt that um, numerous times in my life. It's been actually one of my most definitive struggles, if I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. It's a story that says a lot about the human condition in this world of suffering. Uh, there's an interesting background in the story of Job. Uh, Job is not, he's not, he's not a Jew, he's not, he's not an Israelite. Uh, it's a story, at least in its setting, that happens before Israel is, is even a nation. It's a story of the ancient Middle East. Uh, and uh, people argue about when it was written. When it was finally written down, uh, scholars say, is probably somewhere between 1000 and 1500 BC. So, you know, long about the time of um, maybe David and Solomon are a little bit earlier than that. But clearly it's a story that in its setting predates the time when it was written down. Uh, I've read some scholars who argue that it may be in its setting the oldest story, one of the oldest stories from the ancient Middle East. You know, it's a legend that comes to us from time immemorial. Um, in, in other words, um, because it, it is such an old story, it's not surprising that there are other stories a little bit like Job uh, in the Middle East. A lot of uh, Akkadian stories, the Akkadians were a people that sort of, you know, predate Israel, predate a lot of the other people in Palestine, uh, a civilization that's lost uh, to history uh, now. Um, the most famous of the old Akkadian stories is, is referred to by scholars as the Babylonian theodicy. And what that is, they, they discovered a tablet on which was etched this, this story of, of a dialogue between a guy who was suffering and his friend, and they were talking about why God lets innocent people suffer. Uh, which is to say that around 1000, around 1500 BC, it was, it was apparently quite popular for people to be wrestling with this question of injustice. It seems like people suffer, and sometimes it seems like even good people suffer. And what's up with that? And then there were a whole collection of stories like, well, innocent people suffer because they're not really innocent, or, you know, innocent people uh, suffer uh, because, you know, the gods are being very clever about how uh, they're going to go about blessing those people or something like that. And then there's Job, which sort of is in this genre of stories but stands alone in the depth and the profundity of its dialogue, the fact that it's a whole complete story and not a fragment of stone. There's really nothing else like it in ancient world literature. And I remember when I was in college going through my Western civilization class that all freshmen have to go through, the professor was quoting selectively from Job to prove that this God that so many of you students worship is not, is not fair and should probably be distrusted. And I remember thinking even then, wow, if, if it weren't for the fact that Job comes from the Bible, it would probably be glorified as one of the crown jewels of ancient literature because of its 
psychologically rich dialogue and the way it wrestles with issues of unfairness and proper responses. Um, that's the background of Job. Think like it kind of predates most of the rest of the Bible. It's a foundational story and it has to do with how humanity understands itself in relation to God. Um, I love the book of Job, which is why I'm such fun at parties. I love Job. My great struggle in life has been a struggle against depression. Uh, there was a period in which, I, I call it my great depression, in which I was like near suicidally depressed uh, for a number of years, and I just, I just fell in love with Job. I felt like this guy Job was the only guy who could understand me. I mean, what I really wanted in the depths of my depression is just to go drink a beer with Job. You know, it's like that, that would have, have been good for me. Uh, he was my go-to. Um, we know uh, that life is hard. Um, the book of Job makes clear that life isn't fair either. But somehow God is in that. Somehow God is in that. And that's a complicated thing to understand and to experience, but that's what I love about uh, the book of Job. It is arguably my favorite book, um, at least in the Old Testament. Um, so you're getting a little bit of bias here. Here's how the story goes. We'll just blitz through this whole thing. In chapter 1, at the beginning, you get this little prologue. In the land of Uz, there lived a man named Job. This man was blameless and upright. Some translations will say perfect. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was a great man among all the people of the East this epic legendary figure. This is a man that you would think is truly, truly blessed by God. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them all purified. Wow. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So this guy was ridiculously passionate uh, about living a life that pleased God. Uh, this was a time like before Israel, but you might remember uh, the story about Abraham and Melchizedek. The Israelites weren't the only people that worshiped this one true God uh, that was out there. And so on occasion, you found people who remembered the old stories of Genesis and worshiped the one true God. Job was one of those guys. He was uh, a priest for his family. He was like, like Melchizedek, and he was very careful, very passionate about it. He understood that, well, even if my kids haven't sinned openly, maybe they've sinned against God in their hearts in any way. Anyway, I'm going to offer sacrifices. I'm going to practice uh, uh, righteousness and grace for them. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. Satan is an ancient Hebrew word. It literally means enemy or adversary or accuser. So, you know, the Bible isn't the only book, the only story in which this figure Satan appears. Well, Satan came with the other angels, and the Lord said to Satan, uh, where have you come from? Satan says, well, I've been hanging out on earth. 
Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. God bragged about Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds have spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. Satan says, oh yeah, you know, Job is behaving really, really well, but of course he is. You have blessed him so much. You've made it so easy for him. You know, he's just, he knows where his, bed, his bread is buttered. He's just being nice to you because you are the sugar daddy. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't really trust you. Satan's the accuser. That's what he does. That's his business. Maybe you've heard his voice in his head from time to time, his voice in your head. Well, uh, the Lord said to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. In effect, God accepts the challenge. God and Satan make a bet. They make a bet about Job. God says, uh, Job is a great guy, a great guy. He loves me. He trusts me. And Satan said, no, no, no. If you let me take away all of his goodies, he won't love you anymore. He won't trust you anymore. And God says, it's a bet. Go out there and take away whatever he has. Just don't kill him. Just don't make him sick. And uh, so Satan goes out and does that. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. So Job loses all of his wealth. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky. I don't know if that's like fire from God or like a lightning storm or something like that. And burned up the sheep and the servants. There was some sort of brush fire out there in the grasslands, and it wiped out uh, the rest of Job's flocks. And I'm the only one escaped to tell you. So complete financial disaster, not to mention that he loses a lot of, of servants that he knew. While he, is, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down and carried off the camels. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert. A tornado comes and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. He loses all of his kids because this house collapsed from a tornado strike. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked will I depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. That was a bad day. Pretty good response. Um, Job's like, that hurts. Uh, but I'm going to still believe that God is good. Well, and there's a second round of this. Satan goes back to God, and God says to Satan, I told you. And Satan says to God, oh, yeah, well, I took away his things, and I took away his family, but if you let me take away his health and cause him physical pain, then he would stop loving you and stop trusting you. 
Um, <clears throat> very well, the Lord says, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life. You can make him suffer, but don't kill him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Constant pain. Well, Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it. As he sat among the ashes, he sat in an ash heap. He sat in the trash heap and just scratched his sores with a back scratcher. That, that had become his life completely desolate. His wife came to him and said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. So it was a very helpful woman. <laughs> he replied, You're talking like a fool. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. fantastic response in terms of trusting God in the midst of incredible suffering. Spent his days in the ash heap hanging on. Just hanging on. Anybody ever been in a season of ash heap where all you can do is just kind of hang on? Fend off a of criticism here and there. Just hang on. Scratch your sores. Look miserable. But he was hanging on, and then his friends showed up. Then Job's friends come. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. For you pregnant families. Good baby names. And they saw him, they saw Job from a distance, and they could hardly recognize him. They wept aloud, they tore their robes. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. That's just the first couple of chapters. Uh, and then what starts there is this long dialogue. You have about almost you know, 37, 38 chapters where, God, where Job is just talking to his friends, and it's highly dramatized, it's very poetic, it's very epic. Um, uh, basically, the dialogue shapes up like this. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are like, wow, we feel so sorry for you. What have you done wrong that God should afflict you with such suffering? And Job responds to them, oh, um, well, thanks for your sympathy, but frankly, I can't think of anything I did wrong. I don't know why this is happening to me. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Have you ever said it yourself? I don't know why these things are happening to me. I don't know why my life sucks so much. And then the friend said, yeah, 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 Job, don't be arrogant. Of course something is wrong with you. Otherwise, you would be experiencing health and vitality and coherence in your life. And, and they argue about that. Uh, at first, the friends kind of say it nicely, uh, picking this up from chapter 5. Um, Blessed is the man, uh, this is Eliphaz speaking to Job, Blessed is the man whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Uh, clearly, clearly God is trying to correct you. He's trying to encourage you. Uh, 
Um, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. This is a nice little sermon, actually. You know, you've done something wrong, but God is a gracious healer. Consider uh, the love and, and the healing quality of your, of your God who longs for you to live righteously. So just repent and, and, and get this over with. I mean, it's a, it's a nice little sermon. What's, what's the problem with the sermon? I mean, what Eliphaz says is true, but it's not accurate to the situation because Job is not suffering because he's done something wrong. Job is suffering precisely because he hasn't done anything wrong. Right? That's why he was subjected to this bet in heaven. And Job, you know, decides to just defend himself and say, well, you know, I, I just, I haven't, haven't done anything wrong. You know, his basic response comes, uh, uh, first it starts out gentle. He says, teach me and I will be quiet. I mean, you know, point out to me what I've done wrong and I'll just shut up and take it. I mean, that's fine. If I've done something wrong, I want to know. Show me where I have been wrong, though. You know, I'm, I'm not going to play games with you. I don't know what I've done wrong. I just know that, that life sucks. Uh, eventually, he turns up the heat. He, he says, you know what? I'm not going to keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. The well-meaning comfort of his friends kind of ends up pissing Job off. And he says, you know, I'm not... Not only have I not done anything wrong, but I'm kind of angry, guys, if you want to know the truth. If you want to keep pestering me, let me tell you what's, what it feels like. This sucks. If I have sinned, what have I done to you, God, O oh, watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? Why have I been singled out by this sort of treatment? Have I been like particularly evil? I can't even think of anything I've done wrong. I will soon lie down in the dust. You will search for me, but I will be no more. Job is suffering physically. He's experienced a great deal of loss, but it's clear that Job is a man of faith, and at the core of his experience is why does the God I love treat me with such disdain and contempt? And I understand why he's saying that. Job doesn't know about the bed in heaven. He just knows that his life is terrible beyond reckoning. And with the prodding of his friends, the dude starts to get a little bit, a little bit angry, a little bit bitter about it. His friends reply, How long will you say such things? Your word are a blustering wind. Your words are a blustering wind. You're full of it, dude. Stop, stop talking that way about God. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? Are you saying that God has mistreated you? Are you saying that God is unfair? How dare you speak that way? Here's another back scratcher. It just becomes this ridiculous conversation. It's increasing acrimony and angst. Eventually another character enters in late, this young man named Elihu, who sort of tries to help, but, but he doesn't say anything new, and really he just tries to make himself look good. 
tries to justify himself, show how smart he is, you know, that kind of guy. Uh, there, he, he does share this one particular uh, insight in chapter 35 toward the very end of the story, um, which I think summarizes Job's state uh, nicely. Uh, he says, Do you think this is just? You say, I will be cleared by God. Yet you ask him, what profit is it to me, and what do I gain by not sinning? Uh, I don't know if you follow that, but you say, I'm sure, I, I, I am God's man. I believe that in the end, he will be just with me. But I feel like there's really no use in me trying to be a righteous person anymore. It's sort of that tension, right, which I think Elihu characterizes uh, nicely. Job ultimately uh, responds to his friends uh, and clarifies his position with God in what I think is the most definitive passage of the book, and it's in your program um, from uh, chapter 13. Uh, it's about in the middle of the quotations. We'll sort of pick it up there. Uh, but as I, I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God, you know, it's just so frustrated. It's like, look, I just, I, I just wish God would come and give me a fair hearing. I wish I could get into a courtroom with the Lord and argue my case with Him. But He says to His friends, You, however, smear me with lies. You are worthless physicians, all of you. Will you speak... Uh, wickedly on God's behalf? Will you speak deceitfully for him? Will you show him partial, partiality? Will you argue the case for God? Which is a, par a very poetic way of saying, you're trying to defend God to me? Look at me. Why, why, why would you do that? Um, God doesn't really need a lawyer. Um, so stop being lawyerly with me. Don't be all religious like that, he says. Then he utters this great line, probably the most famous line of the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Which is this nice mix of faith and anger. It's like, look, I'm God's man. I'm God's man till the end. This really sucks. But even if I die... I'll continue to be God's man. But I think he's mistreated me. I think he's mistreated me. And that's tension, and, and, and that, really, that really hurts. I have totally been there in that moment. Um, if you have been around Blue Water, if you've been following the sermons, I've probably told uh, enough stories um, to make you uh, understand that, you know, some major things in life just haven't worked out. Uh, and I've, um, I've walked with this feeling oftentimes in seasons of life where it's like, why, why do I keep trying to do good? You know, I might achieve some good, but my feet get getting swept out from under me by circumstances I can't control or disappointments that God should have protected me from. And it's like God's not really cooperating with me very much. You know? 
And yeah, I'm going to stick with God to the end, but dang it. I wish he'd show up. And we could just have it out. Because for a kind father, I'm not being treated by him very kindly, you know? Anybody been there before? It's like, I believe in God, I trust God, but I'm angry at God. And frankly, it seems like I have a right to be angry at God. What is going on? What is going on? Look, God, I'm obviously yours, but you better get down here and talk to me because you and I have some issues. Anybody, anybody have some issues with God? Two of you and the rest of you are just unrepentant liars. Come on. Um, that happens a lot in times of suffering, particularly for people of faith. If you believe in God and you suffer unfairly, if you believe in God and you experience injustice, then not only does the injustice hurt you, but you have this added complication of where was God when this went down? Why isn't God helping me? And that, I think, is basic to the human condition. That's why I love the book of Job. Because people suffer. And we're constantly inviting people to faith in a kind and helpful God. But everybody has those experiences where it seems like God is just not being helpful at all. That's the challenge. Some of us experience it very intensely, like Job. But almost all of us have at least some experience with this. Where's God when it hurts? Where is God when I get treated unjustly? Why isn't God helping me? It's kind of what it means to be human, or at least to be a, a human with faith. Well, the good news is that the Lord shows up and responds to Job. The bad news is that he does it with a tornado. Um, in chapter 38, this is printed on your program as well. I will read it out of my old school Bible. <clears throat> old school, large print Bible. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, out of the whirlwind, we'll say the older translations. So God shows up, but he shows up in the midst of this great violent storm. And he says to Job, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. And I'll tell you what, I will question you, Job. You want to question me? Let's start with me questioning you. And you shall answer me, okay? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand how I did it. And then it just kind of goes on who marked off the dimensions of the earth. Surely you know, Job. And this goes on and on and on. Basically, God shows up and says, well, before we get to that court case you're eager to talk about, let's take a pop quiz. Did you create the world? Did you create the universe? Do you know how I did what I did? Do you know anything? That's the Lord's response to Job. What do you think of that response to a guy who's naked and bleeding in an ash heap. How does that sound to you? And man, it goes on and on. The Lord 
lays into him uh, pretty good. His, his, his response to Job is, is, is fearsome. You know, it's, it's not gentle. God shows power. But also symbolically, God, God shows something else. He shows that he speaks through storms, that he speaks through destruction, which I think is why God shows up in a whirlwind to answer Job. And notice that God never explains himself. If you read the book, God never offers an explanation for why Job is suffering. He never explains the bet in heaven. He never says, well, this happened, Job, because I was so proud of you. Job never discovers the reasons behind his miserable existence. So God responds, but he doesn't really answer. You know what I mean? God responds, but he doesn't really uh, explain. And, and in response to God's powerful, scary response, Job gives a response to God. Um, I pick it up at the beginning of chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? Well, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And then Job just shuts up. That's basically the conversation. Oh yeah, there are things I don't understand. You're awfully big and powerful. Thanks for clearing this up. Bless you and amen. That's kind of where the whole thing ends. Job seems okay now. He seems okay with God now. He stops, he stops uh, inviting God to court at that point. Why? Why is Job suddenly satisfied with God in, in the situation? He'd gotten no explanations. He didn't give his account to God's face. He didn't take God to task like he wanted to. Well, here's what I think about that. And then here are some takeaways from this whole drama. Uh, number one, I think in the end, Job's soul quiets in the midst of his suffering because it becomes clear and this is so important, it becomes clear that God has been watching. God shows up at the end, and God says some things to Job that can be construed as critical and angry, but, but I think the fundamental fact is that God showed up. God showed up. He doesn't debate with Job. That's beneath God. But he shows up, and he says, hey, Hey, shut up. What's going on here? Let me remind you that I'm God. And in Job's mind, I think he's like, he is God. And he's been watching all along. What does that tell you? It tells you that what was happening to Job was important. The only thing required for Job is for Job to remember to experience that God is personal, that God has been watching him. And if God is watching what happens in your life, then what happens in your life is important. It's important enough to get God's audience. Fundamental. 
God doesn't deal with us on our terms, but the fact that he pays attention to us, that fact that he pays attention to you individually is enough. It tells you that what's going on in your life, whether it's awesome or whether it sucks, whether it's hard but good or good but hard, matters to God. God may not tell exactly what's going on, but it matters to God. That's just, that's just staggering. Uh, in, in my deepest, darkest depressions, this has kind of been uh, my experience. I tell the story often about uh, during the darkest point of, of my depression where I went to this, this Christian conference and I was trying to get prayer for my depression from this famous uh, power minister and speaker, but I couldn't do that. Eventually somebody on his ministry team prayed for me and prophesied to me, said things that were grossly inaccurate. <laughs> And I was just about to leave the building and the Spirit of the Lord fell on me and just like, just knocked me unconscious. And during that encounter, the Lord said, uh, good job, I love you. And then he left. And that's the only thing God said to me uh, during that powerful encounter, but it just delivered me from depression because what I really needed was for God to show up, you know, and he and essentially said, I'm watching, keep at it. Sometimes that's all we need to hear. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. You just need to hear God say, keep at it. This is life. It's important. Keep at it. Keep at it. I think it's important. Uh, there is an end to the story uh, beyond that. Um, some scholars say this end was tacked on years after uh, the original was written down. I don't know. After the Lord said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, so one of the friends, basically God says to the friends, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That's a gracious summary of Job's statements about God. But basically God says to the friends, uh, you, you suck at being friends, um, you know. Job spoke honestly. He didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and uh, you're in my doghouse. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayers. At the end of the book, Job basically gets to minister to his friends. He goes back to being the priest for his ohana. Job goes back uh, to ministry. Um, while Job may not have aced the test exactly, he gets some restoration at the end. There's one final paragraph where Job eventually gets another family. He becomes wealthy again, and he lives to, to a ripe old age, which is just the Bible's way of saying, and life goes on. You know, to that terrible season, life goes on. The problem uh, of suffering is that God seems to lack compassion. You know, he seems to lack justice, um, or he seems to apply it randomly. Sinners get blessed. Really righteous people get afflicted. 
or it just seems like the game is rigged against certain people in life. Some people just have a sucky time of it, you know. Job complains to God at one point in the story, chapter 6. Um, you know, what shall I do now that success has been driven from me? There's no way for me to get ahead. There's no way for me to win this game, it seems. So why do I bother trying? Anybody felt like that? That's the problem. That's the problem that we all face. Life isn't fair. Um, but the problem with the problem of suffering is that it assumes that the main problem has to do with fairness or with comfort. You know what I mean by that? There's a problem with the problem of suffering because in the reality, the main problem of life really doesn't have to do with comfort and it doesn't have to do with fairness. The main problem of life always, always, always has to do with purpose. It has to do with what makes your life purposeful. You have to understand Job and life itself in context. There's an arc to this Bible story, right? The Bible story is the original problem of humanity is that humanity failed to trust that God was good. And God's response is essentially to let life be very hard for us, to give us a lot of challenges, because it's in challenges that we trust God. And then He calls us to a life of purpose, and in pursuing our purpose, that's where our trust is challenged and our, and our trust is built. We have to keep that in mind as we read the story of Job. The original problem, we didn't trust God. The point of life is to build trust in God. The vision for life is to follow God's purpose for your life. It's to pursue purpose, to do good, to bless others, to glorify the name of the Lord. Job's story is filled with unfairness, but that's kind of what makes it purposeful, isn't it? That's why we read it. It's the unfairness that makes it so meaningful. The meaning of the story lies not in what happens to Job, but in how Job responds to it or how he struggles to respond well to it. Job thinks he needs a resolution. He thinks he needs an explanation, but he really just needs to assume he still has purpose so that he can keep at it. So, just to summarize this and wrap up, we want an explanation when things are hard. But we need a response. When things go bad, it's very human to say, why is this happening to me? Instead, when things go bad, you just have to respond well. That's the first principle. Uh, your life situation may well be bigger and more important than you know. You might be the object of a bet between Satan and God in heaven. You don't know. You don't know what consequences are at work in your life. Oftentimes, you won't have the whole story. So rather than to just sink into a lot of guesswork, rather than insisting that God come and explain himself to you, just respond righteously. Just try to do good. Just hang in there. More to the point, whatever suffering that you experience, you know that suffering can destroy many things, but suffering can never, ever, ever diminish your purpose on earth. Suffering never diminishes purpose. I make a big deal about having a purpose-driven life, 
about knowing what your purpose and calling is. Suffering can't touch it. In fact, if you know what your calling and purpose is and you have a lot of suffering, the only thing that's going to happen is that your purpose and calling will become more powerful if you stick with it. God has called you to purpose. Come what may. And let that be your saving grace. Uh, If you endure, if you try to continue with your purpose, if you pursue meaning in your life, even in the midst of suffering, then what you will find is that, one, your trust in God increases, and two, your authority in God increases. One of my, uh, my, my biggest uh, wealth uh, as a minister uh, is that I have stories of suffering out of which I can speak to other people. You know, um, I am confident in my faith these days, now that I've reached middle age. I'm confident in my faith mainly because my faith has been tried so often and I haven't given up on it. And that's a wonderful confidence to have at age 50. It's a wonderful confidence to have at any age. And I have to bless suffering for giving that to me. I hope you don't have to suffer very much to get it, but I do hope that you get it. Does that make sense? Trust during suffering will always lead to purpose and ministry authority for you. You'll have a lot to offer offer others as long as you don't give up. And in a sense, you'll have a lot to offer God because God will know that he can trust you. And I do love it at the end of Job uh, where the Lord comes and speaks to the friends. And he says to them essentially the same thing that he said to Satan at the beginning of the story. He says, I trust Job. Now apologize to him, and Job's going to make it right for you. Go get him, Job. Back to work. Go back to ministry. At the end, God is still bragging about Job. He hasn't given Job any explanations, you know, hasn't made things very easy for Job, but he's still bragging about Job. I love that. One final footnote, if you want to be a helpful friend for somebody who's suffering... Strengthen your friend. That's all you have to do. Strengthen them. It's more important than counseling them. It's more important than explaining things to them. If your friend is suffering, your friend will probably say in one way, shape, or form, Why? Why is this going down? And what I usually do in response is say, How? How are we going to get through this? It's a different question. Right? Angst comes from asking why too often. But power always comes from asking how. How am I going to go forward? That's humanity. That's the human condition. How? Life is forward. Life is purpose. How? In the end, you may get an explanation for why it went down the way it did, but maybe not. But I guarantee you, if you go forward, you will have purpose you will have meaning, and you will have fruitfulness. And you will have trust in God. And that's kind of the point. Kind of the point of life. What suffering people need, even more than sympathy, 
much more than an explanation, is strength. And our job as friends is to strengthen sufferers, not to pretend that we're God and know things we don't know, but to strengthen and inspire. Personally, I think that usually boils down to reminding people that they're meaningful and important and purposeful. But that's a subject for another sermon. I do like to say when people are suffering, you can do this. That sounds simple. But that's a lot better than saying, you brought this on yourself, get right with God. I don't know, maybe you do have some repenting to do in the midst of your suffering. But what I'm going to say to you is, I know you can make it. I know you can do this. I also say, what you do here matters. I know you feel like crap. Uh, You probably have been treated unfairly. I, I don't know why this is happening, but here's what I know. What you do today matters a lot. It matters to me, and it matters to God, because I suspect he's watching. I, for one, believe in you. What you do here matters. I think that's a great way to be Job's friends. What you do matters. And I think it's my, my message uh, to you this morning. Uh, whether you've come in in a hard but good situation or a good but hard situation, um, what you do matters. Even if it feels like success has been driven from you, like there's no chance to succeed in life anymore. Well, like Job, what you do can nonetheless still matter. What you do is still important, even if it's not quote-unquote successful, as you might measure it. That's the message of the book of Job. Man, I love that book. I just love that book. Let's pray. So, Father, uh, for this morning, uh, we're not going to look to you for perfect answers, but we are going to look to you for a response. Move among us, Lord. Uh, Speak to us out of the storms. a great uh, blessing uh, by the mothers uh, for the mothers earlier. Let's just end this service. uh, uh, With another sort of blessing, if you would all stand, please. Uh, In the name of Jesus, brothers and sisters, I bless you as fellow travelers in the life of faith. I bless you to find meaning in the midst of whatever circumstances you find yourselves in. I bless you to go forward in confidence that what you do matters. I bless you to go forward in confidence that God himself is watching. I bless you to go forward in freedom from measurement and comparison. wisdom of infinite patience.
Lord is with you. The Lord loves you. And in the name of Jesus, you are among friends. Have a blessed week. Thanks for hanging out.